From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. Impeachment is in the air. In Texas, Attorney General Ken Paxton was acquitted by the Senate Saturday after the House there voted to impeach. On the federal side, Republicans in the House are moving forward with an impeachment probe of President Biden. We have the latest on both fronts. And NFL Hall of Famer Deion Sanders is shaking up college football. Plus, we get schooled in pop culture by podcast hosts Scotty Beam and Sylvia O'Bell. Aisha, did you not hear about the Tabby story? They stealing shoes. <laughs> it's Sunday, September 17th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Post-tropical Cyclone Lee made landfall in Nova Scotia yesterday with winds as strong as 70 miles an hour. It also brought heavy rain to New England and knocked out electrical service to thousands of homes and businesses. Maine Public's Murray Carpenter has more. The storm knocked down trees and flooded basements, but Washington County Emergency Management Director Lisa Hanscom said it could have been far worse. As of Saturday afternoon, she said she's heard no reports of storm-related injuries and partly attributes this to good planning among the towns in this sparsely populated region. And they all were preparing for this, and I think it's actually paid off because they were all ready um, and had road crews and everything ready to go to keep everything open, and I think it's actually worked out really well. With heavy rain continuing, Hanscom is now concerned about possible flooding. For NPR News, I'm Murray Carpenter in Machias, Maine. Climate activists are marching in New York City today to pressure President Biden to take more aggressive actions to limit global warming. NPR's Michael Copley has more. It's time for President Biden to quickly move the U.S. off oil and gas. That's according to organizers of the March to End Fossil Fuels. They say Biden needs to stop federal approvals of new fossil fuel projects, phase out oil and gas drilling on public lands and waters, and declare climate change a national emergency. Greenhouse gases from burning fossil fuels are the main driver of global warming. The White House has defended the president's record on climate change, including last year's Inflation Reduction Act, which incentivizes technology to cut climate pollution. Biden is due in New York this week for the UN General Assembly. Wealthy countries are under pressure to give more aid to developing nations struggling with rising temperatures. Michael Copley, NPR News. The strike against the three major Detroit automakers is now in its third day. The United Auto Workers Union is seeking double-digit wage increases, similar to what's been given to unionized workers in other industries in recent months. A team sent by the Libyan government based in Tripoli has assessed that about a quarter of the buildings in Derna were destroyed or damaged by the wall of water that ripped through the city one week ago. The BBC's Sebastian Usher reports. A week on from the devastating floods, the international aid effort to help the survivors is gathering pace. As emergency response teams continue to search for the bodies of the missing, there are now 30,000 people who are homeless in Derna and in urgent need of food, clean water and shelter. A new assessment by a team sent by the UN-backed government in Tripoli says that almost 900 buildings were destroyed, just over 200 partially destroyed and around 400 submerged in mud. Every family in the city has been affected in one way or another by the disaster. The BBC's Sebastian Usher reporting. This is NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Moore Healy says Massachusetts is lucky that the state emerged relatively unscathed from what was once Hurricane Lee. She lifted a declared state of emergency shortly after 12 noon yesterday and said the storm impact had been minimal. A few thousand people were without power for stretches of the day yesterday, largely on Cape Cod. Their power has been restored. The Steamship Authority ferries are back up and running after the storm. Service between the Cape and Islands resumed yesterday evening. The Steamship Authority is waiving change and cancellation fees for trips booked for this weekend. The pharmaceutical company Pfizer is relaunching a clinical trial in New England for a potential Lyme disease vaccine. The University of Vermont Medical Center is running the trial. The hospital's recruiting volunteers ages five and up who are healthy and who live in an environment where ticks are common. Dr. Benjamin Lee is working on the study and says people could greatly benefit from a Lyme disease vaccine. So it's a pretty common infection around here. And so for folks in this region who you know, value their time outdoors, it's just really hard to be able to prevent every single tick bite. Lee says early phases of the vaccine study suggest it will be safe and effective. Another iteration of the vaccine study was abruptly shut down in February after Pfizer decided the private contractor running the trial did not meet its clinical standards. A stretch of Dorchester Avenue will be car-free today. It's part of Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's Open Streets series. The event on Dot Ave between Ashmont Street and Freeport Street features vendors, food trucks, and kids' activities. The festivities will run from 10 this morning until 3.30 this afternoon. Tonight in Foxborough, the Patriots take on the Dolphins. And this afternoon, the Red Sox play the Blue Jays in Toronto. It is 60 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, a high around 80. And keep in mind, if you're spending some time at the beach, dangerous rip currents are expected today. If you're ever caught in a rip current, relax, float, don't swim against the current. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by SEED. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a probiotic and prebiotic formulated with strains to support gut, skin, and heart health at seed.com public. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thanks for joining us this morning. Seems like everywhere you look these days, there's an impeachment. Just yesterday, the Texas State Senate acquitted Attorney General Ken Paxton after the House there voted to impeach him. And coming up in Washington, a push by House Republicans to impeach President Biden. But you know who's unimpeachable? NPR national political correspondent Mara Liason. Welcome back, Mara. We've missed you. Thank you, Aisha. So let's start in Texas. The FBI is still looking into Ken Paxton's involvement with a political donor. But what did you make of an overwhelming vote to impeach in the Texas House, but then an acquittal in the Senate? This is a giant fight inside the Republican Party of Texas. Everyone here are are Republicans. Paxton was impeached on corruption charges by the Republican State House on a very overwhelming vote, 121 to 23. Then he was acquitted by the Republican State Senate by an equally decisive vote. Paxton is a Trump ally. Trump supported him during this whole impeachment episode. 
as you said, he still faces criminal charges of security fraud that could this is a case that's been going on for eight years. There's also another federal investigation. There are civil suits against him. But Paxton was elected as attorney general last year in Texas by a very large margin. And it's possible that like Trump, this failed impeachment could help him politically with Republicans in Texas. And Texas is a very red state. Mm. And now to the U.S. House, Speaker Kevin McCarthy said this past week there will be an imp- an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Uh, let's first let's, let's first deal with the facts. Like, why is this happening? McCarthy says he has to open an impeachment inquiry about President Biden so the House can have the power to subpoena documents to see if there is evidence of a crime. This mostly involves the president's son, Hunter Biden's business dealings, and whether Joe Biden benefited from them. We know that Hunter Biden traded on his family name. Uh, He put Joe Biden on the phone sometimes when he was trying to impress business clients. Unseemly, for sure, but criminal, we don't know yet. So far, the House has not turned up any evidence that Joe Biden himself received any money. And so far, the House Republicans' investigation of Biden hasn't asked for more documents or turned up any evidence of a crime. They've mostly been accusing Biden of being a criminal. And what's interesting about this whole proceeding is that Kevin McCarthy is going to open this inquiry by himself without a vote of the full House. Mm -hmm. This is something that he criticized Nancy Pelosi for doing. He said it's very important that the full House should vote because, remember, she opened an impeachment inquiry into Trump without a full vote of the House. But politically, Republicans are determined to level the playing field, to make Biden seem the same as Trump in the eyes of voters. Trump was impeached. Maybe so was Biden. And that's uh, that's what they're trying to accomplish politically. So, so where do you think this goes? I think that this could go in one of two directions, maybe two directions at once. <laughs> Republicans think they can tarnish Joe Biden with impeachment by tying him to Hunter Biden's recent indictment relating to false statements that Hunter Biden made on a gun permit uh, uh, application. The White House thinks that there could be a backlash against Republicans, just like there was after the Clinton impeachment. Uh, impeachment used to be very rare. Now it's seen as just another partisan political weapon. And polls show that only about 30 percent of Americans think the impeachment is a serious investigation. Over 40 percent thinks it think it's just an effort to embarrass the president. It could do both of those things. Mm. So elsewhere in the program today, we hear from an economist who points out that Americans are working and spending. The numbers look good, but the vibes aren't good. The vibes are off, according to opinion polls. Um, and now there's this big auto worker strike. What's, what's going on here? Right. Well, we've talked about this in the past, and it is a big mystery. Why, if the economy is better by so many metrics, people feel so bad about it? Some of it is partisanship. When there's a Republican in the White House, Democrats tend to say the economy is doing bad. When there's a Republican in the White House, Democrats don't like the economy. And But there's another thing going on. Even though inflation is down in some areas, it hasn't fallen enough, still high in the energy sector. And Americans also understand that even though they're better off than they were maybe six months ago, they're not necessarily better off than they felt five, six, seven years ago. Inflation in areas like healthcare and education and housing is still high, and it's been high since even before COVID. 
Uh, so that's one of the reasons. The other thing is that president's approval ratings and the economy seem to be divorced from each other. It used to be that a president's approval ratings rose and fell with the economy. But Donald Trump had a good economy mm. before COVID. He was very unpopular. Biden has overseen a pretty strong recovery, but he's also really unpopular. And uh, that may or may not determine his reelection. And as you said, there's a UAW strike. If that hurts the economy, that certainly will hurt the president. That's NPR's Mara Eliasson. Mara, thank you so much. You're welcome. When Ukraine launched a major military offensive in June, expectations ran high. But the Ukrainians have made only limited advances against Russian forces, and winter is on the horizon. NPR's Greg Myrie is with us now to take stock of the Ukrainian effort. Hi, Greg. Hi, Aisha. So, Greg, you've reported extensively from Ukraine. Um, what are Ukraine's prospects for taking back more territory before weather turns bad? Well, it's certainly possible, but if Ukraine is going to make a major breakthrough before the winter sets in, it needs to happen fairly soon. The top U.S. general, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, addressed this question recently in an interview with the BBC. Uh, the Ukrainians are still plugging away with steady progress, and there's still a reasonable amount of time, probably about 30 to 45 days worth of uh, fighting weather left. The Ukrainian forces are trying to advance on three separate fronts in the south and east, and they've moved forward several miles in several months of heavy fighting. But they're still well short of their own stated goal, which is to push about 50 miles to the southeast coast and split the Russian forces in two, leaving them much more vulnerable. So far, the Russians remain deeply entrenched and are really contesting every bit of territory. So, I mean, if the if the front lines don't change, uh, you know, in the next few weeks, like, does that mean that we're looking at a stalemate over the winter? That's certainly a possibility, Aisha. Um, and to take a step back, Russia launched a full-scale invasion in February of last year, and lots of territory changed hands last year. But since the beginning of this year, very little territory has changed hands. So it does raise the question of what comes next or even how the war might end. And I spoke about this with Charles Kupchin. He's a former diplomat and national security official. When this offensive reaches its limits, which it will probably do in a couple of months when it gets muddy, what do we do then? The Ukraine is suffering terrible loss of life. And as a consequence, uh, one has to ask, might Ukraine be better off trying to get a ceasefire and beginning the process of rebuilding? So Kupchin was part of a small, unofficial group that met quietly this year with Russian officials. And he's faced considerable pushback for raising the possibility of a ceasefire or a permanent agreement at a time when the U.S. and Ukrainian governments are still very much focused on the battlefield. Is there reason to believe that either the Ukrainians or the Russians are even interested in negotiations? We're really not seeing that. President Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian leader, uh, who will be in the U.S. this week at the United Nations, says it's unrealistic to negotiate with Russian leader Vladimir Putin. He says Ukraine's goal is to reclaim all its territory, and the Russians still hold about 15, 16 percent of Ukraine's land. And most Ukrainians agree. The polls show that 80 percent or more of the Ukrainians want to keep on fighting to drive out the Russians even if that means a protracted war. And that was certainly my experience talking to Ukrainians recently. And as for Putin, this past week, he met with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in order to secure more weapons. Now, you don't normally think of North Korea as a land of abundance, but they do have artillery shells, and that's what Putin needs. 
He seems to believe he can outlast Ukraine and that the U.S. and Europe will tire of supporting Ukraine and that the war will sort of eventually break in his favor. We've been talking about fighting on the front lines, but but what else are you keeping an eye on? Well, attacks behind the front lines inside Ukraine. You know, just this week, Ukraine claimed a couple of significant attacks in Crimea, the peninsula in the south, where it says it inflicted damage on a Russian submarine and Russian warships. So Ukraine is now regularly hitting Russian supply lines and ammo dumps miles behind the front lines using missiles from the west. And bit by bit, this makes it harder for Russia to resupply its troops in Ukraine. What about reports of attacks inside Russia itself? So that's something we're seeing with increasing frequency. Ukraine is now making its own drones, which can reach Moscow 300 miles away. Uh, Several times they forced Russia to temporarily shut down airports in the capital. So it's hard to measure exactly how much impact this is having on Russia's overall war effort. But it's clear that Ukraine's ability to carry out these long-range attacks has expanded dramatically over the past year and continues to get stronger. That's NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thank you so much. Sure thing, Aisha. So many people struggle with depression. There are medications that can help, but two new studies show that daily habits could help some people avoid getting depressed in the first place. I think the biggest surprise is that if you have a favorable lifestyle, you can reduce the risk of your getting depression by 57%, which is really quite a massive amount. Catch that story tomorrow on Morning Edition. Listen on your radio, smart speaker, or phone. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. And coming up here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the story on the Danish Chamber Orchestra, the Hunting Symphony, and as featured performers, some very good dogs. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, presenting the world premiere of Lunar Eclipse, starring Karen Allen and Reed Burney. Now through October 22nd, tickets at Shakespeare.org. Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. Rescue teams continue to search the Libyan coastal city of Derna one week after a devastating flood. The United Nations says at least 11,300 people have died. President Biden goes to the United Nations today. He's to address the General Assembly Tuesday. White House officials say he'll use the visit to advance U.S. interests in a number of areas, including climate change and strengthening support for Ukraine in the Russian invasion. And union officials report some progress in negotiations with the three major Detroit automakers yesterday 
A strike is in its third day. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Scribner, publisher of The Six by Lauren Grush, telling the story of America's first women astronauts, six women each making history going to orbit aboard NASA's space shuttle, available in bookstores and online. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or staples.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The leaders of the world's developing countries met in Cuba this weekend. The group, known as G77, gathered along with China to discuss science and technology, but geopolitics ended up taking center stage. NPR's Ader Peralta is in Havana and joins us now with more. Hi, Ader. Hey, Aisha. Okay, so give us an idea of what was discussed at the summit. There was uh, some very real talk. Um, What's clear is that the Global South uh, writ large is not making as much progress as anyone would like. Uh, President, uh, Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel said it clearly. He said developing countries are facing the brunt of the world's problems. Everything from hunger to poverty to displacement and climate change is worse in the Global South. Diaz-Canel called on countries to unite. Let's listen. And what he's saying is because the South can no longer bear the dead weight of misery. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro also called for bold action. He called the six-decade-old U.S. sanctions on Cuba criminal. And he said it was time for the Global South to raise its voice, denounce unilateral actions. Let's listen. Tenemos que buscar nuestros propios caminos, nuestros propios modelos políticos, And he's saying we have to find our own path, our own political models, and not accept dictates from any ex-world power or any world power who wants to dominate, colonize. Mm, I mean, that that comment certainly sounds like a swipe at the U.S., It is, and uh, the president of Nicaragua, in case you didn't uh, get that swipe, uh, Daniel Ortega put it more bluntly. He said, we all know it for almost two centuries. The enemy is the same, the USA. Uh, But I think one really interesting part uh, of this summit is that there's some serious fissures between leaders that should be allies in Latin America. For example, in the past few weeks, uh, there has been a tit-for-tat between the the leftist leaders of Colombia and Chile against the Nicaraguan president, who they call a dictator. Um, And Ortega responded by branding them traitors and trash. Uh, But yesterday, in his speech, he called for unity. But this is a real rift. It's a real argument between leaders who seem to find answers in democracy and those who find answers in authoritarianism. So did anything concrete come out of the summit? 
Not really. I mean, it was a show of solidarity among the Global South countries. The joint declaration called for an end to the U.S. embargo on Cuba without saying it, uh, without saying it directly. It also called for a more inclusive global financial system. But concretely, no. Uh, the most concrete thing that came out of this summit is that the G77 plus China agreed to declare September 16th as a day of science, technology, and innovation in the South. So over the past couple of years, we've heard a lot about the dire economic situation in Cuba. Uh, Apart from the summit, have you been able to get out and about and, and see for yourself on the ground? I have. And, and what you see is an economic crisis. Um, and it's because of a perfect storm. President Trump tightened sanctions against Cuba. COVID hit. Tourism hasn't recovered. And then you have some economic policy decisions by the Cuban government that have not worked out. So here on the streets, you see long lines at government supermarkets and the currency has taken a massive hit. Uh, The pain is evident. When you greet people, you say, how's it going? And the answer is unfailingly, we're making it work. And I'll give you one example. A well-paid doctor in Cuba makes about 7,000 pesos. And yesterday, I found a carton of of eggs on the black market for 3,500 pesos. That's half of a doctor's monthly salary for 30 eggs. And that tells you that the economic basics in Cuba are out of whack. Uh, So life is incredibly difficult. That's NPR's Ada Peralta in Havana. Ada, Ada, thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. Ghost orchids grow in just a few places in Florida and Cuba. There are only about 1,500 left in Florida, and they're under threat from habitat loss and poachers. Now they're also the subject of a federal lawsuit. Environmental groups are asking the federal government to immediately take steps to protect the ghost orchid as an endangered species. Here's NPR's Greg Allen. There are just a few places in Florida where a visitor can expect to see a ghost orchid. One of them is the Audubon Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary. A particularly spectacular ghost orchid blooms there every summer just off a walkway. Sanctuary director Keith Lockenen says it always attracts lots of visitors. You kind of hear this gasp, you hear this pause when they see this really delicate, beautiful flower that's sort of way up there. You know, it's just really magical. Orchids are charismatic as plants go, and ghost orchids have a mystique all their own. They cling to certain species of trees, don't have leaves, and are hardly visible for much of the year until the white flowers, just a few inches long, bloom. Because the plants are well camouflaged, when that happens, the flowers seem to float in midair, giving the ghost orchid its name. It's been featured in books and even a movie. Environmental groups have asked the federal government to give the orchid protections under the Endangered Species Act, but it's a slow process. Elise Bennett, with the Center for Biological Diversity, says the groups are suing the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to speed up the process. And we base that petition on overwhelming scientific evidence that shows precipitous declines for the ghost orchid, as well as ongoing and worsening threats in the future. Among those threats are loss of habitat, destructive hurricanes, and sea level rise. But the number one issue scientists and environmental groups are worried about is poaching. Ghost orchids rarely survive when taken from the wild. Poaching has already led to the extinction of at least two species of Florida orchids. Last year, law enforcement officers arrested a poacher who had taken 36 rare plants, including a ghost orchid. George Gann with the Institute for Regional Conservation says social media and the availability of information on the internet has made poaching a bigger threat than ever. Because of the data that are available online, that it's become much more popular 
and known about. And so poachers have much better information. Gann says when he began researching and documenting ghost orchids and other species as a high school student in the 1970s, few people ventured into Florida's cypress swamps. In recent decades, he says, that's changed. More and more visitors are willing to wade through the swamps for a chance to see ghost orchids and other rare species. And that, he says, is a problem. People are well-intentioned, but the amount of human traffic, of people walking and touching and trying to see the ghost orchid is probably not sustainable. Listing the ghost orchid as an endangered species would allow the federal government to designate the areas where it's found as critical habitat. That would open the way to additional protections, including possibly limiting access, so the orchid isn't, as Gann says, loved to death. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. One man is captivating the college football world, and he's not a player. Deion Sanders, a.k.a. Coach Prime. The legendary football player is in his first season as head coach at the University of Colorado Boulder, a team that won just one game last year. This year, the Buffaloes are undefeated. Last night, they defeated bitter in-state rival Colorado State in a thriller. Into the end zone, in a crowd, no good. Picked off by Woods and it's over. Buffaloes win it. That's from last night's broadcast of the game on ESPN. David Ubbin has been following Deion Sanders closely. He's a senior writer for The Athletic, where he covers college football. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So Deion Sanders, coach of the University of Colorado football team, but he's also one of the most gifted athletes we've seen in American sports. Remind us, though, who is Deion Sanders? He is a guy that a lot of people consider the best cornerback, defensive back to ever play the sport of football. He's a Hall of Famer. He's, you know, won two Super Bowls. He even played baseball and, and made a World Series appearance. Like, so he's done a lot. So he's that type of athlete that is very well known. Yeah. So the fact that they're off to the kind of start that they're off to has turned Boulder into the center of the college football universe and has turned Colorado from irrelevant and bad to a good football team, but the most relevant football team pretty much overnight. The Colorado team was pretty bad last year. I mean, can you talk a little bit about where things stood when he took over? He didn't take over like a winning team, right? They were the worst Power 5 team in the country last year. They played five or six games where pretty much the other team could have scored as many points as they wanted to. I think they had 1,800, something like that, people show up for the spring game last year. And this year you had a packed house of almost 50,000 despite a huge snowstorm. And that's only carried over to the season. So let's talk about how the, the start of the season has gone for them and like why are people showing out like this? Well, there's an excitement there. I think there's a swagger. There's a cool factor to all of this. And, you know, there's a lot of people in the coaching community and in the world of college football that don't like Dion, that are rooting against Dion, and he's winning in spite of them and letting them hear about it on the way. And there's not a lot of people that operate and conduct themselves that way. And I think he causes a lot of people to gravitate toward him. And it looks and sounds a lot like Dion, the player, who had the same effect on people. Let's talk about that. What is Deion Sanders, as the coach, what is his philosophy? And why does it rub some people the wrong way? 
Well, the biggest thing is cutting players and flipping the roster and using rule changes that were basically meant so that coaches could have 85 scholarship players and not have to play three, four, five years where they were down a few scholarships. He used those rule changes to flip his roster, and he did it by the rules, but not by the spirit of the rule. And that infuriated a lot of coaches. But then the way that he conducts himself and the swagger and the and the big talk and all that stuff, I think fans, that doesn't really rub them the right way. So you're gaining all of this notoriety within the sport, and then you win on top of that, and then you let people hear about it. It's sort of a perfect storm of something that we literally have never seen in this sport before. Well, can I ask you, too, about, like, you know, you almost can't separate, like, kind of the, the race aspect of this as well. Mm-hmm. Because he he is a black football coach when there are not a lot of black football coaches at that level of college football. Am I right about that? Well, it's, it's not even that he's a black football coach. It's that he's a black football coach who doesn't code switch, who is himself all of the yes, time, yeah, yes. <laughs> who wears the glasses, wears <laughs> yes, the hat, yes. does all those things, mm. and is un- unapologetically black in all spaces. He's not conforming to... Yes, and if yes. you're a black head coach in college football, there's not a lot of guys who are talking about this, but you're different when you're on the recruiting trail versus when you're dealing with boosters at a wine and cheese function. Mm. That's just the reality of college football. There are not very many of those people. And so Dion is Dion, and I think that's part of what attracted him to Colorado is that they were desperate and they needed him badly. And he feels like he's a change agent. He feels like he wants to come in and and have sort of the rule of the roost. And, and they've allowed him to have full autonomy to do these things that a lot of presidents and athletic directors would have cringed at in terms of how he flipped his roster and to be himself. And, and two of his kids are also playing football for him at Colorado talk about that is that unusual the nepotism <laughs> like what 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 about that so it's a complicated thing because one of the things that Dion has talked about is when you get Dion you get the whole family so Shador is there and he is a guy that is not a nepo baby he was a high three-star recruit who had offers from Georgia Alabama basically if you can name a big-time program he had an offer from them but Shiloh Sanders one of his other sons followed him over there He originally started at South Carolina, followed him to Colorado now. And his daughter, Shalomi, is playing basketball at Colorado. And Deion Sanders Jr. has the most popular of three YouTube channels that follows (laughs) the the everyday goings of the team that have gained them this huge following online of people that don't care about college football or even Colorado, but they care about Deion. And you get, you know, through two weeks, 16 million viewers on two of the biggest stages that, that you've got in the sport. And I saw that uh, Deion Sanders, because he ranks his children like by who's the most, <laughs> who's favorite at the moment. And now Deion Sanders Jr. has gotten the number one ranking by Deion as his favorite child. Um, so, so, but Ta- speaking of things that cause a reaction in people, yeah. If there's one thing that, that nobody ever has a reaction to, it's parenting philosophies that some people might disagree with. But yeah, it's, it's how he ranks them and how those power rankings shift. You get a different answer out of him the different the, 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 the few he times you ask him, kids. so it's, it's yeah. unclear how they get that. <laughs> That's David Ubbin. He's a senior writer for The Athletic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. 
And now a round of applause for the Danish Chamber Orchestra. The group performed Hunting Symphony by Leopold Mozart this month. That's the father of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Leopold's Hunting Symphony is not performed very often. And one reason might be because the third movement of the symphony requires dogs. It's supposed to reflect the pictures of a hunt going on. Within the first two movements, you will have the signal from the horns showing that the hunt will begin. And then in, in the third movement, it's written to bring in the dogs. That's Andreas Vito, the CEO of the Danish Chamber Orchestra. Most orchestras use a recording of dogs, but the Danish Chamber Orchestra under Vito and Chief Conductor Adam Fischer decided no, sit. Stay, come. They went for the real thing. In the spring, we held an audition. We had around 10 dogs and we had a, a real uh, dog trainer from the police helping us select the right dogs. And at this audition, they were showing their skills and can they bark on command and can they even more important stop on command. They chose three dogs, a German Shepherd, a Cocker Spaniel, and a Spanish Water Dog to create a trio of Mezzo-Paprano, Alpo, and Barcatone. So of course we were, we were listening, how would these sound uh, together? And he says the three different barks make hunting symphonies sound authentic. Now, getting Rover to roll over can sometimes be a challenge, so how did conductor Adam Fisher get the dogs to bark on command during this performance? He would start waving his hands towards the dogs. And the owners would each do their own signal to their dogs to speak and then to hush like the good puppies they are. The owners also dressed themselves and their dogs appropriately for the classical musical stage. They made their dogs beautiful. Some of them were, would fix their hair maybe, but uh, it was mostly owners that dressed up in black. And, and also for the first two movements, they would sit on stage together with the dogs just being quiet. It was quite impressive that the dogs could be on, on stage without sounds. The orchestra performed the Hunting Symphony as part of its Haydn Festival, and it was a big treat for the audience. One of our missions is to, to get the classical music in contact with people, meet new audiences. I'm not sure if we're going to bring more animals on stage, but for sure we're going to look into how can we pop up uh, with new ideas, how can we interact with our audience, make them smile, while still be playing uh, the classical music on the very highest level. Andreas Vito of the Danish Chamber Orchestra, which has gone to the dogs in a very good way. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Learn more about the music and artists you hear on NPR and discover new music by visiting npr.org music. There you can also watch a Tiny Desk concert or get an exclusive first listen of new music. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A Cambridge biotech company is laying off 40% of its workforce. Sage Therapeutics is dismissing 95 workers. The Boston Business Journal reports the layoffs follow an FDA setback. The company was denied approval for its depression drug. The drug was found to be effective for postpartum depression, but not for major depressive disorder. Tomorrow morning, the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission holds a public meeting to discuss and possibly vote on a plan to adopt marijuana industry regulations that were the focus of a public hearing earlier this month. The proposal includes measures to clear the way for people with criminal records to work in marijuana shops, to crack down on host community agreements, and to allow all communities to eventually host cannabis cafes. A reminder, the Bourne Bridge will be undergoing repairs starting tomorrow. Only one lane in each direction will be open instead of two lanes. Drivers should expect delays through late November. Tonight, the New England Patriots face the Miami Dolphins at Gillette. This afternoon, the Red Sox take on the Blue Jays in Toronto. It's 62 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and a high around 80 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival, presenting an evening of live comedy, film screenings, performance poetry, art installations, and more. Friday, September 30th, cambridgesciencefestival.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Amy Dickinson showed how we love to support our celebrity guests as they take our quiz. Dude, you're never going to get this right. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever we might try to throw off this week's special guest, Hillary Rodham Clinton, well... She's had worse. Join us for the news quiz where this week we all will be wearing pantsuits. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older nprwineclub.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from Joseph Young, who conducts the blog Puzzleria. I said, name a creature that has a world capital in its name, replace the capital with another creature, and you'll get another world capital. What is it? Well, the creature is a mosquito, which contains keto. Change that to cow, and you get Moscow. Okay. (laughs) Well, I mean, y'all were on this, even though that sounded a little confusing to me, because we've received nearly 900 correct responses, and the winner this week is Jerry Meldon of Deerfield Beach, Florida. Congratulations, and welcome to the show, Jerry. Hi, thank you very much. Glad to be here. So how long have you been playing the puzzle, Jerry? A few years. Oh, a few years? Yes. So you haven't been playing like since the, the postcard days and all this stuff. You new to the game. I'm new to the game, yeah. 
<laughs> but you still true to the game. That's what I appreciate. So what <laughs> what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? I do puzzle books and I cook and I exercise and I hike. Oh, okay. So that that's great. So you're active and then you also do the puzzle. So you do, you're exercising your mind yes. as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't even got to ask you, are you ready to play the puzzle? Because you've been preparing. <laughs> if, even if you didn't know it, you was preparing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, take it away, Will. All right, Jerry and Aisha. Every answer today is a baseball term. And name these terms from their anagrams. For example, if I said idler, I-D-L-E-R plus S, you would say slider. So here we go. Number one is undo, U-N-D-O plus M. What baseball term is undo plus M? And your hint is it starts with the letter M. Oh. Something you would see in baseball. It's something you st- stand on? Is that is it something you stand on? That's where on? the pitcher stands. Mound, M-O-U-N-D. The pitcher stands on the mound is right. Treat, T-R-E-A-T, like it's yep. a something food is really good as a treat, plus the letter B is in baseball. Mm. And uh, think of a person who is trying to hit. Batter. Batter is it. Wow. Wow is right. My brain in here. (laughs) Here's here's your next one. Lobed, L-O-B-E-D, like containing lobes, plus the letter U. Plus the letter U. And this is something a a batter might try to get. Starts with the letter D. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Do you know a lot about baseball, Jerry? No. I should. I'm from Cleveland, you know. Oh. Uh, yeah, let me see. So a D and a... Um... It's it's better than a single. A double. A double, double is yes. it? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <Shoo>. Okay. <laughs> okay, I got to warn you, they're getting harder now. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Your next one is Cypher. C-I-P-H-E-R. Cypher, like a secret message. Plus T, as in Thomas. And here's your hint. It's a position. A position in baseball. Well, of course, everyone in baseball is uh, is important, but who might be the most important player? Pitcher. In? Pitcher. Pitcher yes. is it. Okay, and here's your last one. Flouted. F-L-O-U-T-E-D, like somebody flouted the rules. Yes. Plus I. And here's your hint. It's a position. Outfield. Outfield. Oh, my goodness. finish. You did a great job. How do you feel? Oh, just great. That was fun, Aisha. <laughs> no. That was fun. Oh, well, I'm glad you had a great time. You did an awesome job for playing our puzzle today. You'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And, Jerry, what member station do you listen to? WLRN. Oh, awesome. That's Jerry Meldon of Deerfield Beach, Florida. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you so much, Aisha and Will. I sure appreciate it. And thank you for all you both do. Oh, thank you. All right, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Greg Van Mechelen of Berkeley, California. Name a place where many people go for vacation. 
It's a two-word answer, three letters in the first word, ten in the second. Change one of the vowel sounds from a long A to a long E, and the result phonetically will be one reason to visit this place. What place is it? So again, a place where many people vacation, three, ten. Change one of the vowel sounds from a long A to a long E, and the result phonetically will be one reason to visit this place. What place is it? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, September 21st at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Have you ever told your best friend, hey, we really should start a podcast because people need to hear this? <laughs> okay, before you roll your eyes, hear me out because I'm about to introduce you to a couple of best friends who actually made it work. Welcome to the Scotty and Sylvia show where we speak our minds like it's our full time job and have fun doing it. I'm Scotty Beam, a globe trotting media personality with great taste in music. Mm. You liked it. I did. That's a. You liked that's it. A, that's a new okay, one. Okay, I, was, I, was, I knew what you were spicing thank it up you. for the I was show. trotting the globes. Uh, you've been, so trot, you've just, been trotting the globes. I just thought I'd just write that mm, down. Mm. And I am Sylvia Obell, mm -hmm. a writer of profiles. Which one? Cover stories. Too many to name. Scotty Beam and Sylvia Obell's first podcast with Netflix ended in 2022. So Hooray Media, run by actress Issa Rae, gave them another platform one that they say elevates the voices of Black creators. And they talk about everything. Just like when we got into how rapper Ice Spice always seems to be carrying around a purse. Like, even when she accepted an award at last week's MTV Video Music Awards. Like, what is in this purse? They, didn't she say that she always carries an extra pair of drawers no. in her bag? Where, <laughs> like, an emergency <laughs> pair? Yeah. Does she carry panties in the purse? I was hoping it was. <laughs> I was hoping maybe it was just a backup charger and you know some Fenty lip gloss. But you know what? I think she said that, that it was some panties. But she always gonna have it. She gonna have that purse. Exactly. <laughs> but seriously, what stood out to me when I listened to their show was how they brought their true full selves to the mic. So I asked them, like, has it always been like that? Yeah, I've always had to be my authentic self on the mic because I, I just, one, I grew up in music industry. Um, so as far as hip hop is concerned, being your authentic self somewhat plays a part, uh, especially if you want longevity. Also watching my mom, who also is in radio, she speaks with such, uh, it's just, it, it to watch her, navigate those lanes and be able to speak to people and be herself and those love her for who she is um really spoke to me as a radio personality slash podcaster because um, your mother just not to cut you off but your mm -hmm. mother was a big or it has been a, on a new york radio station for years yeah. had, yes. a, had a long has a long career yes um so you you grew up in this sort of radio absolutely. industry absolutely grew up in it my whole life um, she's been doing radio for 35 years. I'm 32. For me, it was definitely something I had to 
I had to unlearn being made to feel like I couldn't use my own voice or my authentic voice, or for me, even writing in my authentic voice before even the mic part of it. But because, you know, coming from traditional news, news, they try to make you feel like it's not up to par when you speak a certain way or when your blackness is evident or your personality is evident or humor or if you just don't do things by the T, you know. I love the fact that social media and um, just our audience and just the way things have gone have shown us that that's not the case. I, I mean, you know, I, I may know a little bit of, of, of something about people being upset that you don't talk like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> do you? Just a tiny, tiny bit. I may have heard something about it. Um, You know, just a little bit. Um, Since I have y'all here and y'all are pop culture experts, you know, I have to take some time to talk about some important current events. The Video Music Awards happened last week. You know, I don't know if you guys watched, but to me, it it was just such a prime example of how women in hip-hop, they are running everything right now whether you love cardi b whether you you know a Nicki minaj whether you barb whether you are you know meg the stallion they are running music period like what stands out to you about this moment for women and their place in pop culture in hip-hop yeah i think women are carrying hip-hop right now like this generation mm-hmm. of it and i don't know if we've ever really been able to say that before i don't know if we've ever had the diversity within women in hip hop yeah. that we have right now. And I just think that I love the fact that if they're pushing past her, there only has to be one narrative yes. that everybody keeps trying to do, put on them. At the VMAs, we had Cardi, Meg, Callie performed. Um, yeah. You know, uh, Ice Spice was there, Sexy Red was there, Nikki. Flo was, Millie. Flo Millie was Flo, there. Yeah. Like, it was just so beautiful to see, like, not only one of them got to perform, you know what I mean? There was the, <laughs> yeah. the one moment where we let the one woman in hip hop come on stage during a, a, a male rapper's set. I love to see it. I love to see the camaraderie. I love to see the women mm. stick together. And I also like to see the competitiveness. I love to see Nikki mm. throwing shots, but I love to yeah. see it. I love to see all of it. I love to see these girls exist in rap like how the men did yeah. and be able to fan over them just like I did with men in rap. Another thing that obviously we're heading into fall is kind of cooling down. Not really. Depends on where you're at. But, you know, some people will say this is cuffing season. This is the season to settle mm. down, cut up with the one you love. Um, For people who are living that lifestyle, uh, not me. <laughs> but what, what are you both looking forward to this fall? Like entertainment wise, what will you want to settle into this fall? Mm. It's weird because with the with the writer strike and the master yeah. strike, it's hard because I know a lot of the things I tend to look forward to in the fall, like new season of Abbott Elementary or, you know, Mm -hmm. new season of whatever show we're not going to get. And so I think that that's making me sad. Mm. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) I think um, American Fiction, Core Jefferson's movie, I'm really excited about that's coming out. I think it's starting like Jeffrey Wright and there's like a lot of Blacks in there. Oh, I love Jeffrey Wright. Yes, and I, like, I saw Tracy Ellis Ross in there. Like, there's a lot of faces. I have to go to the screening soon, but, like, I'm looking forward to, like, that film. And what about you, Scotty? Is there anything you're looking forward to? And it could be, old oh, just a binge or whatever. I think, yeah, I think reintroducing myself to old shows. Mm. Uh, I love layering. I love to wear clothes, <laughs> tons of clothes. <laughs> so I'm very excited about that. I'm also excited about Drake's album that should be coming out. Oh, are we getting it? 
Yeah, I mean, it should be coming out. That man's giving us like three albums this year. That's crazy. Yes, and hopefully it's good, baby. Are you going to start letting men inside your house this fall? I'm going to start letting men inside my house in the fall. You don't let men in your house. In the summer. That's probably a good plan, though. Aisha, did you not hear about the Tabby story? (laughs) I did hear the Tabby story, but people don't know. She was dating this man. Just, you know, just a little thing. Mm -hmm. And the man stole the woman's shoes. And gave it to his girlfriend. Gave it to his girlfriend, who the other girl didn't know about. What in the world? A Tabby What? I missed that last Yes, gave it to his girl. Yes. That, that man was, did she not care that he slept with somebody to get her those shoes? Well, he probably didn't tell her. He just said, here you go, baby, I was thinking of you. Yeah, without the box is crazy. You giving me a raw pair of shoes is nuts. No, now listen, Aisha, I was about to ask. Uh-uh, How no. much is that? You know what I'm saying? No. Like, it was like, it was some dedication. No. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm shutting this down. <laughs> Like just finally, I know you, you know, in addition to entertainment, as we talked about, you talk about life, you talk about a lot of things, um, you, you end your show with these positive affirmations. So I want to ask both of you, when you think about the future of this show and your work, what is the personal positive affirmation that guides you? Oh, I think I'm often trying to think of like, how do, what guides us? Like, how do we make sure we're doing the right thing or in the right place at the right time? Because it's like, life is just so unpredictable. But I think for the show and for us, it's about staying true and not forgetting who we are and getting lost in that, in the midst of everything. Because when we don't compromise, like what the show is like, what we want to do, the project we're putting out, we always land on our feet. You know, I think we spend a lot of time thinking about what others may think of you, especially if you want to talk about things that may even be sour to others. But to know that if you're speaking from truth and speaking from honor and speaking for those who don't have the words yet, you're doing the right thing. And that's the purpose. So I try to keep that top of mind because I could, it gets, you know, some things can get loud, especially your own mind. That's Scotty Beam and Sylvia O'Bell. They are the host of the Scotty and Sylvia show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us, Aisha. This was great. Thank you so much, Aisha. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Smart Mouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. Thanks for starting your Sunday with 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Tap and listen to WBUR Anywhere you may be headed, listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. It's 62 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and a high around 80 degrees.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales University. Prepare for an immersive approach to education, from research and internships to cutting-edge labs, students explore their passions and discover new ones. And the International Institute of New England, helping respond to the state of emergency in Massachusetts by supporting refugees and immigrants. IINE.org. For Latinos in the U.S. with Alzheimer's, good medical care is a must-have, but for Spanish-speaking patients, getting culturally competent care can be just as valuable. It's, it's very surprising, you know, the, the reaction they have, especially when you play old-time music. Is the U.S. ready for a growing population of older Latinos? The next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. California has filed a lawsuit against major oil companies accusing them of downplaying the role of fossil fuels in climate change. And it's been a year since massive protests broke out in Iran after the death of a young woman detained by the country's morality police. Where do things stand now? We're seeing from ordinary Iranians who are taking the streets that they want this regime gone. And until that happens, I don't think you're going to see protests in the country end. Plus, singer Corinne Bailey Ray and her new album. It's Sunday, September 17th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The UAW's strike against Detroit automakers is in its third day with no resolution. Strikers are demanding double-digit wage increases, similar to what union workers in other industries have secured. NPR's Andrea Shu reports. The United Auto Workers Union originally called for raises of 40% over four years. The big three automakers have gradually raised their offers to about half that, around 20%. In addition, they've shortened the time it takes for workers to reach the top wage. The car companies say what they've put on the table is historically generous, and they note that profits are needed to fund investments, including in the very expensive transition to electric cars. Now, unionized pilots and part time UPS drivers have recently negotiated wage increases topping 40 percent, but the big three car makers have non-union competition, so auto workers may not be as successful. Andrea Shu, NPR News. Atlantic Storm Lee is moving across the Canadian Maritimes today after bringing torrential rains and near-hurricane strength winds to New England. One weather-related death was reported. California is suing five of the world's largest oil companies. The state alleges the companies downplayed the risks of fossil fuels and caused billions of dollars in damage. From member station KQED, Dana Cronin reports. California Governor Gavin Newsom and Attorney General Rob Bonta filed the lawsuit in Superior Court in San Francisco. They're targeting ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, ConocoPhillips, and Chevron. The American Petroleum Institute is also listed as a defendant. The state wants the companies to contribute to a fund that would pay for future damages caused by climate-related disasters. 
The civil case follows a wave of city and state lawsuits from around the country targeting oil, gas, and coal companies for their contributions to climate change. For NPR News, I'm Dana Cronin in San Francisco. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is heading home after a week-long visit to Russia. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Seoul. State media reports that Kim inspected Russian fighters and bombers at an airfield and boarded a Navy frigate at Russia's Pacific Fleet headquarters in Vladivostok. Kim was accompanied by Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu, who told Russian media that Pyongyang and Moscow are discussing possible joint military exercises. In a written interview with the Associated Press, South Korean President Yoon Song-yal called such cooperation illegal and unjust. Yoon plans to raise the issue with world leaders at the UN General Assembly in New York this week. He repeated that the U.S. and South Korea have reaffirmed that any attempt by North Korea to use its nuclear weapons would result in the end of the regime in Pyongyang. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Cambridge biotech company Sage Therapeutics will lay off 95 workers. That's 40% of Sage's workforce. The Boston Business Journal reports the layoffs come after the company was denied FDA approval for its depression drug. The drug was found to be effective for postpartum depression, but not for major depressive disorder. Part of the MBTA's Green Line extension is closing for nearly a month starting tomorrow. The stretch between Leachmere Station and Union Square Station will be shut down. That accommodates crews repairing the Squires Bridge in Somerville. The T says passengers should consider using MBTA buses, specifically the 86, 91, 87, and CT2 buses. The T is not providing shuttle bus service, with one exception. Shuttle buses will run during next weekend's Fluff Festival in Union Square. The Cohasset police chief says the department dodged a tragedy after a large tree crushed an unoccupied cruiser during yesterday's storm. At about one yesterday afternoon, an officer responded to a report of low-hanging wires. While he was out of his car, the tree fell on the roof of the car. The car was damaged beyond repair. The police chief says this serves as a reminder of why people should stay inside during large storms. East Boston is celebrating Mexican Independence Day with a festival today. The free event kicks off at 2 this afternoon on Border Street between Lexington and Saratoga Streets. The festival will feature mariachi music, food and beer, dancing, and more. Tonight at Gillette, the Patriots take on the Dolphins. This afternoon, it's Red Sox Blue Jays in Toronto. It's 62 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, a high around 80 degrees. Keep in mind, especially if you're going to spend some time at the beach and are thinking about getting in the water, there are dangerous rip currents expected today, so use caution. A chance of some showers tonight. Tomorrow, showers, a chance of thunderstorms, a high around 70 degrees on Monday. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Seed. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a probiotic and prebiotic formulated with strains to support gut, skin, and heart health at seed.com public. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. 
California is suing some of the world's biggest oil and gas companies for allegedly deceiving the public about their role in causing climate change. Michael Copley joins us from NPR's Climate Desk to talk about what's happening. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Aisha. So this lawsuit, it, it was filed Friday in California State Court. Like, tell us a bit about what's going on. What is California accusing these companies of? Yeah, so what California is saying is that executives at some of the biggest oil companies like Exxon and Chevron um, lied to the public about the dangers of fossil fuels and climate change. Uh, so the lawsuit says that these companies uh, knew for decades that burning fossil fuels would raise global temperatures and cause the kind of catastrophic impacts we're seeing now, like explosive wildfires, extreme storms. Um, but rather than warn the public, the lawsuit says these companies put out disinformation, that by doing that, they delayed society from trying to limit global warming. Uh, so states and localities uh, have filed dozens of lawsuits against oil and gas companies making similar accusations. This isn't the first one. So what makes this one stand out? California is a huge economy, and so they're going to have a lot of resources they can bring to bear in this case. Um, and I think there's a sense that they're going to add muscle to cases brought by other states like Rhode Island and Minnesota, cities like Honolulu and Hoboken. And the feeling is that uh, you could see California's lawsuit usher in more suits from other parts of the country. That's according to Mike Mino. He's a spokesperson for the Center for Climate Integrity. It's a group that works to hold fossil fuel companies accountable uh, for their impacts on climate change. This is not going to be the last one of these cases filed, and we can expect more of them to come as the evidence against big oil grows stronger and as similar cases get closer and closer to having their day in court to put, to put these polluters on trial. You know, I think it's also notable that California has been hit really hard by the impacts of climate change. Uh, rising sea levels threaten a lot of the state's coastline. Uh, they've had devastating wildfires in just the past couple of years. What we've seen is insurance companies pulling back from the state, home insurance companies pulling back to avoid billions of dollars in damage. So what California wants is for these companies to pay into a fund to deal with the impacts of climate change. What are the companies saying about the lawsuit? So Shell, one of the companies uh, named in the lawsuit, uh, said the courtroom's the wrong place to deal with the issue of climate change, that what we need is uh, government policy and sort of concerted action from across the economy. Uh, it's worth noting that the Supreme Court this year allowed some other similar cases to move forward in state courts. We know that the American Petroleum Institute, another defendant in this California case, uh, called the case meritless and politicized. Um, you know, I think critics of the oil and gas industry think it's kind of interesting hearing the industry talk about the need for government policy, since the industry is accused of working against government policy to deal with climate change for years and years. Frankly, that's just more disinformation from big oil because these cases don't seek to solve climate change or enact climate policies. That was Mike Mino again from the Center for Climate Integrity, and he says what these cases are about is holding companies accountable for alleged wrongdoing. So the reality is lawsuits move, you know, pretty slowly, but global temperatures are steadily going up. What are scientists saying about the risks the world is facing from climate change right now? Greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels uh, are the main driver of global warming. Emissions keep going up, uh, so temperatures keep rising. What climate scientists have said is that we need to limit warming to about one and a half degrees Celsius to avoid some really catastrophic impacts. We're nowhere close to that. We're headed for about two and a half degrees Celsius of warming. And the impacts of that warming um, are becoming more and more visible. You know, this week in Libya, thousands of people died when catastrophic flooding caused dams to break. You know, what we know is that climate change makes heavy rain more common. A hotter atmosphere holds more moisture. 
Um, so average rainstorms and hurricanes can get a lot more dangerous. Uh, and what scientists say is that these impacts are going to keep getting worse as people keep putting more greenhouse gas emissions up into the atmosphere. That's NPR's Michael Copley. Thank you so much. Thanks, Asia. It's been a year since Iran's morality police detained a 22-year-old woman named Massa Amini. They stopped her because they said she wasn't following Iran's conservative dress code for women. Within three days, Gina, as she was also known, was dead. Her death triggered months of protest across Iran, with protesters chanting, Woman, Life, Freedom. The government crackdown that followed was deadly, with thousands arrested and an estimated 500 killed and at least seven people executed in connection with the protests. Holly Dagres is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, and she joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. For months after Massa Amini's death, uh, protesters seem to be out on a daily basis across Iran, you know, chanting women, life, freedom. Where is that protest movement now? Well, Aisha, I know that there's some skepticism in the West about where these protests are going, but we're now a year into these ongoing anti-establishment protests, and they've been happening day in and day out in various forms, whether it be women uh, not abiding by mandatory hijab rules, ethnic minorities like in the southeastern province of Sistan, Baluchistan, protesting every Friday after prayer people chanting from the rooftops in their windows that they don't want an Islamic Republic. And of course, graffiti that's been scrawled on the walls, calling the Supreme Leader of Iran a murderer. To me, these protests have been sustaining this whole year. And unfortunately, they're not getting the attention that they deserve. Mm. So what, if anything, has changed for the average Iranian? We've actually seen a crackdown increase in the lead up to the protest anniversary. Iranian women have been getting text messages. The Iranian authorities have been using surveillance technology that actually identifies their faces. They've been threatened that they would have their internet connection cut off, their cell phones cut off. Women have even been threatened with fines. And more gruesomely, even with threats of actually having to wash bodies in a morgue. And these are all reports that Amnesty International has put out and other rights organizations. So these aren't rumors. These are facts that are being documented. You're you're Iranian yourself. Um, What are you hearing from young Iranians inside the country who were perhaps hopeful that they could see some real changes? Well, the the youth I've been in touch with, they want the Islamic Republic gone. They they see that their story had made headlines a year ago. So they're wondering why isn't the international community doing more? As the anniversary is approached, there has been heightened security presence. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So just um In the lead up to the protest anniversary, we've seen um, that there's been a massive crackdown, not just of activists, but of journalists and the family of those that were killed. Just this past week, um, 
Massa Gina Amini's uncle was arrested and her father um, was brought in for interrogation. We've also seen that there's been a heightened security presence in the capital, Tehran, in other cities. We've also, of course, been hearing a lot about the internet issues, that it's dropped, it's slowed down. And the reason that the, um, the authorities mess with the internet, of course, is because it's how Iranians share information with the world when the security forces are brutally cracking down on protesters, but also for civil rights organizations to document it. And, and in addition to this, this crackdown and surveillance, um, there's also a new draft law um, that would allow a 10-year prison sentence for women who don't wear headscarves. Uh, can you talk about that? This new law, it's just an additional measure to what's been happening for the past four decades. And it signals to me that this is a regime that does not want to give an inch to its people, and it wants to repress them furthermore rather than giving into their basic needs and wants. And I know that you mentioned that journalists have been targeted and others. Uh, there has also been an, an ousting of academics recently um, who supported the protest? The latest is that they're not just being sacked, they're being replaced by regime loyalists. And it's, again, the signals that this is a regime that doesn't want to listen to the needs and wants of its people. It sounds like from what you're saying that the regime is doing what it can to crack down, to kind of keep this from spreading even further. Is, is Am I looking at that the right way? Let's say tomorrow they decided they, this law wasn't going to happen and they're going to allow women to wear whatever they want in the streets. Truth be told, that's just a Band-Aid on the bigger issue, which is that this is an irredeemable regime that's systematically corrupt, repressive, and mismanaged. And we're seeing from ordinary Iranians who are taking the streets that they want this regime gone. And until that happens, I don't think you're going to see protests in the country end or civil disobedience end because they've had enough. They don't want the status quo. That's Holly Dagres, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much, Aisha. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 and coming up in about 15 minutes, new research in Georgia points to a decline in Southern accents. You'll get that and more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses, stanhopeframers.com, and Historic New England, hosting its 2023 summit in Providence, Rhode Island, bringing together regional and national leaders to share ideas and solutions to strengthen the livability and vitality of communities across New England. Be part of the conversation. Learn more at summit.historicnewengland.org. I'm Nora Rahm with these headlines. Atlantic Storm Lee made landfall in Nova Scotia yesterday at near hurricane strength, hitting New England and maritime Canada with strong winds and torrential rain. One death was reported in Maine. The strike against the three major Detroit automakers is now in its third day. The United Auto Workers Union is seeking double-digit wage increases at a time of high profits for the companies. And a United Nations conference has voted to list ruins in the ancient West Bank city of Jericho as a World Heritage Site in Palestine. The decision is likely to anger Israel, which controls the territory and does not recognize a Palestinian state. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Scribner, publisher of The Six by Lauren Grush, telling the story of America's first women astronauts, six women each making history going to orbit aboard NASA's space shuttle, available in bookstores and online. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or staples.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. The Texas Senate found Ken Paxton not guilty in his impeachment trial, a vote that automatically reinstalled him as the state's attorney general. It's a big win for some Republicans in Texas, namely those who support former President Donald Trump. Paxton was a key player in efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results, and he has a history of attacking Biden administration policies. Sergio Martinez Beltran covers politics for the Texas Newsroom and joins us from Austin. Good morning. Good morning, Aisha. So remind us why Paxton was facing an impeachment trial in the first place. Sure. Yesterday's vote was truly the culmination of a four-month ordeal in the Texas legislature. In May, the Republican-led House launched an investigation of accusations made by Paxton's former employees who said he used his office to shield a political donor from an FBI investigation. A bipartisan panel of investigators found there was sufficient evidence that Paxton committed bribery and obstruction of justice, and House lawmakers then overwhelmingly voted to impeach him, and he was immediately suspended as attorney general. But the Texas Senate is the only chamber that can convict Paxton, and that didn't happen yesterday. Senators rejected all 16 articles of impeachment. This time, only two Republicans voted to convict. So this means Paxton is back as attorney general. So he was impeached overwhelmingly by the Texas House, but saved by the Senate. Like, what? why is that dynamic, or what is that dynamic? 
Right. Some Republican senators blamed the House for letting it get this far. They said there wasn't enough evidence against Paxton and that the impeachment process in the House was rushed. It's worth noting that the House is majority Republican and the Speaker is also a Republican. But Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who presided over the Senate trial, scolded them for how they conducted the impeachment in that chamber. In the House, the vote to send the articles of impeachment against the Attorney General to the Senate happened in only a few days with virtually no time for 150 members to even study the articles. The speaker and his team rammed through the first impeachment of the statewide official in Texas in over 100 years, while paying no attention to the precedent that the House set in every other impeachment before. And Paxton's lawyers pushed this narrative that the people behind the impeachment efforts were Paxton's political enemies, and they weren't talking only about Democrats. In fact, Republican state senators got a lot of pressure before this vote. There was a coordinated effort by political activists to get people to call the offices of these lawmakers. And the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas vowed that in next year's primary elections, he'll back the opponents of those senators and House members who supported impeachment. Other Republican fundraising groups have said the same thing. Wow. Okay. So after his acquittal, Paxton issued a statement warning President Biden that he was back in office. What was that about? Well, Paxton has been in office since 2015. So for three terms, he's used his role as Texas Attorney General to create a national profile. And he's done it a few ways. He sued the Obama and Biden administrations over federal spending, immigration and abortion. So as soon as he got acquitted, Paxton issued a statement where he told President Biden to buckle up because his policies will go, will not go unchallenged. Uh, Paxton is also a big supporter of Donald Trump's. After the 2020 election, like you mentioned, Texas sued to try to get election results in four states tossed out. They went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ultimately rejected the lawsuit. That's Sergio Martinez Beltran of the Texas Newsroom. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. President Biden talked up his economic agenda, what his administration has termed Bidenomics, at a community college in Maryland last week. A higher share of working-age Americans are in the workforce now than any time in the past 20 years. And job satisfaction is higher than it's been 36 years for 36 years. And we're growing the economy. It was another attempt by the president to tout the positive economic changes the country has seen under his administration. To see what an economist makes of Biden's argument and what the White House has accomplished, we called up Betsy Stevenson. She's a professor of economics and public policy at the University of Michigan and was the chief economist in the Labor Department under President Obama. She joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hi, it's great to talk to you. How would you characterize the strength of the economy right now? What President Biden has just highlighted is that a higher share of working age people are working than at any other time in the past. And that's really nothing short of a miracle. If you had told me in 2020 that we would see not only a full recovery of labor force participation, but one that even exceeded where we had been, I would have thought that that was a real long shot. If you go back to thinking about what should the Fed have done and did the Fed need to be worried about inflation, a lot of what they were trying to think about is, will people come back into the labor force? And do we need to worry about prematurely cooling down the economy and preventing that labor market recovery? Because this labor market recovery 
is what gets us back to our overall economic potential. But there there has been pain, and that was in inflation. New data last week showed inflation ticked up a bit in August. The Federal Reserve hasn't taken another hike in interest rates off the table yet. Uh, mortgage rates are still high if anybody's in the, the home buying market. Are we still on precarious footing? I think the Fed's been pretty good overall at getting inflation down in a way that we haven't seen that kind of, you know, wage price spiral take off. But it's not going to be a smooth path. There's going to be some bumps like what we saw last month. I just want to be clear, like inflation is terrible and nobody likes it. You've got, you know, your paycheck and then all of a sudden it's not buying you as much stuff as you thought it was going to buy you. I have to say, though, a little bit of inflation, it's painful, but it's spreading that pain over lots and lots of people. This is really hard for for President Biden because that's got all the people grumbling about him. But what it's really avoided is the pain of unemployment, which really hits a smaller group of people, but extremely hard. But when it comes to the idea of a recession or the looming shadow of a, of a recession, are we past that? Or is that still something that could, you know, be around the corner? There's always a threat of a recession. But what I know is it doesn't feel like we're in any kind of extra risky period of time for a recession right now. Growth remains pretty strong. Unemployment remains quite low. And even if we saw a further slowdown of the economy, it could slow and we still wouldn't be in recession territory where growth is actually turning negative. Some of this is really about the way people responded to the pandemic. They built up a lot of savings. And, you know, the pandemic has started to recede. Consumer spending has been incredibly strong. And that strong consumer spending is what's fueled our ongoing economic growth, it's also actually the what's fueled inflation. And so it's got, it's like a double-edged sword. Mm. I want to ask you about this disconnect that we've been seeing for a while now. If people feel bad about the economy, um, does that mean that the economy is bad? I think we've just been in a period where there's been so much change and difference in change is so hard And then you've got these higher prices and you've got different ways people work. And then we've got this younger generation coming up behind us who want things very differently. And I think that that feeling of being unsettled is real. The economy is changing and there's lots of reasons to feel nervous and worried. But there's been um, tremendous gains. You know, we've seen a world in which The wages at the bottom have risen much faster than the wages at the top. And that wage compression, that narrowing of the gap between the haves and the have-nots, certainly President Biden would like you to think that's all due to Bidenomics. This also due just to this period of, of underlying change that we're in. So there's a lot of good things that are coming about because of it, but there's some scary things. Nobody really likes feeling unsettled. That's Betsy Stevenson. She is a professor of economics and public policy at the University of Michigan. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Let's 
talk about accents for a moment. Okay, I'm Ralph Brabham, and I'm talking with my mom. I'm Jane Brabham, and I was born in Greensboro, North Carolina. So I grew up in Greensboro also, and I think you and I have somewhat different accents. Do you think that you sound the same as you always have? Well, I'm so used to it, I don't think about it in terms of accent, but really, I kind of feel like it stayed the same. You would think it would have changed, but I don't really think it has. But there is a difference between mother and son accent-wise, and that's something Margaret Renwick has been looking into. She's a linguistics professor at the University of Georgia. She joins us now from Athens. Welcome to the program. Hi, Aisha. Thanks so much for having me. So I, I gather that you recently published a study on the fading Southern accent, um, which is quite interesting to me. Tell me about your research. Sure, I'd love to. Our study analyzed the voices of 135 native Georgians born as long ago as the 1880s and as recently as 2003. So they span seven generations. And in our study, we focused on four vowels because vowels give you great clues to where somebody comes from in the English speaking community. And so these are exemplified by words like bide, bait, bet, and bat. And we found that all of them are more Southern in older speakers and less so in younger speakers. So the Southern drawl versions of these are bad, bait, bet, bat. Speakers in Gen Z who are current college students instead use what we call a pan-regional accent that has been documented elsewhere in the U.S. Why are people speaking with less of a Southern drawl? Well, in our paper, we argue that a major driver of this phenomenon is demographic change in Georgia and throughout the South. Before World War II, Georgia received very little migration into the state. But beginning in the 1960s, Georgia saw increasing migration from other areas of the U.S. And by the 1980s, it was one of the top destinations for interstate migration. And the Atlanta metro is still one of the fastest growing in the U.S. So these population movements mean that Georgia speakers growing up after the 1960s were in a very different linguistic environment than speakers from earlier generations. But you don't think it's like social media or like my kids, you know, they would watch Peppa Pig when they were younger and they would start talking about jumping in muddy puddles and all this stuff, like have a, an English accent. I don't do a good English accent, but you know what I'm saying. So certainly language is aspirational. So we, we aim at what we want to sound like. That's definitely true. On the other hand, little kids don't learn language from social media. Kids acquire language from their parents, from their caregivers. And so that is our earliest linguistic input that helps us learn our native language. Then once kids get into school and enter adolescence, they emulate their peer group. And so we think that's where language change from generation to generation really takes hold. Okay. So your research focused on Georgia, obviously, but how widespread is this trend? So, um, this same accent that Gen Z has, which sounds a little bit like California English, to be honest, has shown up in places like California, Raleigh, Detroit, and Boston. You know, with people moving around much more and, and you know, these big growing southern metropolitan areas, does that mean that the southern accent is doomed? I don't think the southern accent is doomed. Um, I think it means something different to people to be Southern today than it used to mean. And um, so I think the Southern accent is changing. And I think there are lots of ways to sound Southern. So if you think about the vowels that we looked at, we looked at like four vowels in our paper, but 
English has something like 15 different vowels to choose from. So when you say 15 different vowels, you mean different vowel sounds? Yeah, there sure are a lot. <laughs> you don't like this one anymore? You don't want to do bite? You go and do something else. Um, it's, it's, it's not a problem. And another thing that people can use to signal where they come from are things like word choices. So y'all is super common. Um, it's not stigmatized like it used to be. And so there are tons of different ways to show people where you come from. Language change is a constant. We can't stop it. But I don't think that means that everybody's going to start talking the same. That's Margaret Renwick, a professor of linguistics at the University of Georgia. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to be here. Thanks. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Double Dutch, you hear those words and probably imagine girls, maybe with pigtails, leaping high over two ropes being turned to a beat. In Chicago the other day, women, hundreds of them, all 40 or older, it was the 40-plus Double Dutch Club's third national playdate, a time to remember being a kid by socializing and working up a sweat jumping rope. NPR's Cheryl Corley was there. It was a perfect day to join friends for play, sunny and warm late morning with lots of music going. 46-year-old Amy Skipper remembered when she began jumping double dutch. She was about eight, but she hadn't jumped rope for decades. It came back just like clockwork. They say once you learn, you never forget, and it came right back. Now, I might can't jump as long, but I still got it. <laughs> Pamela Robinson came up with the idea for hundreds of women from across the country to come to Chicago to play for a day. She founded the 40-plus Double Dutch Club seven years ago. The 52-year-old says she needed to get out of a funk and remember what brought her joy. So it takes you back to childhood, back to a time where there's no stress, there's no bills. You don't have any issues when you're a kid jumping rope. Women gathered in clusters, some turning rope in syncopated rhythms, others counting off and running in the ropes, feet and knees lifting high. Like they were a part of a giant sports team, everyone wore a black shirt, the numbers on their back, a proud display of their age, every decade from the 40s to the 80s represented. My name is Lydia Reed. I am 48, I will be 49 in September. My name is Lisa, I'm from Philadelphia, and I'm 56. Lisa Barnes found out about the club through Facebook and says for her and many of the women, the 40-plus Double Dutch Club offers them much more than exercise. Love it, the sisterhood, the friendship, the fellowship, and I'm just enjoying myself. The women play other games, too. They step in unison to a line dance, swing hula hoops around their hips. Some sit to play some jacks, but the main event is Double Dutch. Some are amazing acrobats. My name is Kimberly Baker. Miss Kim, as she's called, is one of the younger ones in the bunch. I'm 43 years old. I used to jump in competition when I was a young girl. And so I stopped, you know, life got grown and you have kids and all that. That hasn't slowed her down. As the ropes turn, Miss Kim jumps in, drops down, and does a few push-ups. Her feet and arms rising together in superb coordination. Today was my first day to doing it. And so I was really, really excited. 
because I finally got it. And then she throws in a little speed jumping. There are now 140 plus double Dutch chapters or subclubs as they are called located in the US, Canada, Germany and Israel. The jumpers typically get together once a week. No better way to stay in shape says Sharon Cockerham. And to be 65 and, and in great shape is awesome. It's awesome and I love it. I love jumping. I love teaching people how to jump and I love the progression of you know seeing beginners. I love it. Love it. Love it. That's just about what everyone here at the 40 plus double Dutch club says as they hang together playing the games they grew up on during a warm sunny day. Cheryl Corley, NPR News, Chicago. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Get set for another planned shutdown of an MBTA branch. Starting tomorrow, part of the Green Line extension closes for nearly a month. The stretch between Lechmere Station and Union Square Station will be shut down. That accommodates crews repairing the Squires Bridge in Somerville. The T says passengers should consider using MBTA buses. The T is not providing shuttle bus service, with one exception. Shuttle buses will run during next weekend's Fluff Festival in Union Square. The City of Boston's Open Streets series continues today in Dorchester. A stretch of Dorchester Avenue will be car-free. The event on Dodd Ave between Ashmont Street and Freeport Street today features vendors, food trucks, and kids' activities. The festivities will run from 10 this morning until 3.30 this afternoon. It is 64 degrees in Boston, lots of sunshine today, and a high around 80 degrees. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Wilbur, with comedian Mike Birbiglia this holiday season on his Christmas Parmesan tour. Two new shows added, December 16th to 23rd, thewilbur.com. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. The Biden administration is working hard on what could be an historic Israel-Saudi Arabia peace deal. You really only can normalize relations once, right? So this is a card that you can play once, and once it's played, that's it. We'll look at what's at stake for Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the United States. That's On Point Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. When we meet Vesper in the new horror novel, Black Sheep, she's a prickly 23-year-old waitress estranged from her family for years. Her father is nowhere to be found. Her mother, Constance, is a horror movie scream queen with a taste for the macabre and zero interest in parenting. 
The only love Vesper has is from her aunt and her cousin, but was it really love? It occurred to me then that our past is not the truth. It's warped by time and emotion, inevitably muddied by love and resentment, joy and shame, hope and regret. I couldn't trust my own memories, good or bad. In Rachel Harrison's novel, Black Sheep, Vesper questions all her memories. When she finally returns to the fundamentalist community that she grew up in to attend her cousin's wedding. And then, plot twist, we discover it's not a Christian fundamentalist community. Uh Uh-uh. When this crowd is talking about the Lord, they are actually talking about Satan. Satanism is sort of just a cover for how fanatical these people are. What kind of religion it was didn't really matter to me. It was more about how much they believed and putting these people, her family, her community, at odds with Vesper, my protagonist. So it was less about how does this church I made up work or basing it on anything specific in reality versus just what does it mean when you come from a community that believes in something with all their heart and you just don't buy it and when you're alienated from your family and community what does that do to a person and where do you go from there and can you ever go home again You know, Vesper talks about, like, Hell's Gate. They're believing the end times are coming and everybody else who's not chosen, they're going to burn and all this stuff. It made me think of, like, you know, growing up in church and you're hearing about these are the last and evil days. There can be, like, a lot of very violent (laughs) imagery that children are exposed to. Um, Because I remember hearing last and evil days and being afraid because I was, like, a little kid. I'm like, I haven't even lived yet. But everybody else would be happy. (laughs) It's like kind of bizarre. It's interesting looking back because when you're young, you kind of just accept things as they are. Yes. And then yeah. looking back, you're like, I was, I was young to be hearing about that kind of stuff. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah. And it was like, that was very scary. And I didn't have context for this. In some ways, it can be very scary going to church. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you were like me and it was like, sit still, be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Is that some of what you wanted to convey? Like sometimes these things can be scary in general. Yeah. And everybody has their own different experience. I had some experiences with religion growing up. I went to a church that had pictures of the crypt keeper in the bathroom. That was like, Satan is watching you. Like these things... We experience as kids, they mess us up great. So we can write about them later. For me, in in that way, it was personal. But it was less about me thinking about how church is scary and more a product of doom scrolling, which I think we've all done quite a bit over the past few years. And just seeing a lot of cynicism and seeing people say, this is the worst time to be alive. Everything sucks. It's hopeless. And having to ask myself, is it hopeless? And writing this book through Vesper, she has that attitude of cynicism and just not having faith and feeling pretty jaded about it. 
obviously there's a very dysfunctional family in this book. Yeah. You know <laughs> That's kind of next level, but you know yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> I would hope everyone who reads this book comes away with it like, okay, my family isn't that bad. If Not anyone comes bad. away from Black Sheep and is like, you think that's rough, come to Thanksgiving at my house, then we're in trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously most families are not going to be as dysfunctional as this, but like you do this really great job of showcasing that there can be this awkwardness in, in family where, you know, Vesper gets along with some members of the family. She's annoyed by others, seemingly always at war with her mother, but she has this loyalty, say, to her cousin, and that's what brings her back. Um and she forces herself into some type of reconciliation. What do you think about this idea of reconciliation and your families always being with you or a part of you or making peace with that? Reconciliation is going to be different for everyone. I think in the beginning, Vesper has reason to have hope that it could happen and want it to happen. She goes home because she wants things to change. In those relationships, there needs to be give on both sides. She doesn't really get give on the side of her family. So in this situation, people have to read to see what happens. But I do have hope that people who have family issues can reconcile. But I also am a big believer in boundaries and protecting yourself. So I think with the knowledge Vesper has at the end of the book, I I think she would advocate for boundaries as well. <laughs> but it's our own. She had to go through the journey. To the journey to get there. To, to you know, to try and see and see what happens. Um, ultimately, when people read the book, it's not that you, you want them to learn a lesson, but I guess when people read Black Sheep, what ultimately do you want them to take about this idea of belief. I hope when they finish reading, they first of all had a ton of fun reading it. I hope they were scared. And I hope that it's just food for thought. Just think about our relationship to faith and nature versus nurture. Those are big questions. I hope mm. it just prompts some thought and that they sleep with the lights on. <laughs> and it keeps them up to think about these big questions. That is Rachel Harrison. She is the author of Black Sheep. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. About a decade ago, an old bank on the south side of Chicago was at risk of being demolished. But artist Theaster Gates decided to save it. This building could be a repository for the cultural lives of many black and brown people. He led a restoration of the space and transformed it into what's now the Stony Island Arts Bank, a museum filled with objects representing moments and eras in black music, politics, dance, and writing. The collections of art and music are exactly what the musician Corinne Bailey Ray found when she visited. When I was moving around this space, it was this absolute kaleidoscope of all this black information. And what she saw transformed her. 
She saw objects that represent problematic aspects of culture, too. They've been dubbed negrabilia, they're kind of black knickknacks, they're white imagined blackness, they're derogatory objects fizzing with a very present kind of pain. Gates invited her to perform her music in the Arts Bank, but she said her earlier music didn't feel like the right thing to sing. So she started writing new music. Give ourselves into the night And what kind of time will paint an illusion And my heart was an empty box And now, six years later, Corinne Bailey Ray has a new album called Black Rainbows. I asked her if there was a specific piece that prompted her to write this music. It was a sculpture that I saw standing on, I think, the third floor. I could see all these different layers of paint, but it looked like somehow they'd been pulled off or stretched off or scraped off. And it had these mm -hmm. windows in it. It reminded me of these adobe temples, you know, those Malian adobe temples. It's made from the floorboards of an abandoned police station in Chicago. For me, straight away, I thought about objects and what they are witness to. There are incidents that happen where the human witnesses either have passed away or they have a particular agenda where perhaps the truth that they communicate isn't the whole story. I thought, who has walked on these floors? What have these floors seen? And so I felt in this, I was writing this poem and it was called You Who Have Walked These Floors in Fear. And I thought about the narrative around Sandra Bland's death. What song on the album exemplified that? Yes, the song Erasure is an example of that when I'm looking and seeing the erasure of black femininity. I'm seeing the erasure of black children. I'm seeing the portrayal of black children as not innocent, as criminal, as the erasure of black personhood. And I wrote this song and it came out with fire it came out with rage and I was talking to a friend saying this is such a difficult song and they said to me yes but the chorus says they tried to erase you they tried to eviscerate you hide behind the curtain make you forget your name they tried to so although it's a reflection on the erasure it's also recognition that this was an unsuccessful attempt And that sound, sonically, is very different from your, your earlier work. Are, are you worried at all because it is different from what you've done in the past, or are you at peace with what you have put out? I mean, I love the work that I've already made, and thankfully when you make new work, it doesn't wipe out the old work, right? So the old work is all still there. You know, I've played those songs all around the world since 2005, and I love them. You know, I love playing Put Your Records on Like a Star and Green Aphrodisiac and Breathless. And, but I am thrilled right now to be on tour playing this new music and telling these stories. New York Transit Queen, New York Transit Queen, New York Transit Queen, little over 17. 
there's a, a fun moment on the album um, that comes on the song New York Transit Queen. It seems like you really like New York because you have that song Paris Nights and New York Mornings from your album The Sea. But, but who is the New York Transit Queen? The New York Transit Queen is Miss Audrey Smoltz, who was the winner of Miss New York Transit in 1954. And she entered this beauty competition and won. I think she was the third or fourth ever, ever winner. And I found out about it from reading the copy of Ebony magazine from 1954. When I saw this picture, I thought, who is she? She was staring out of the photograph, wearing this bathing suit. She was hanging off the back of a fire truck. I wanted to know more about her. The Ebony Fashion Fair, which went around many cities in America, over 100 cities and it presented couture fashion in black neighborhoods all over the US. Audrey Smoltz was the announcer for the fashion fair, so she would tell people, you know, what they, she would describe what was being worn, or she would say things like, she's very hip, she'd say things like, what to wear on Sunday when you don't get home till Monday. So she was super hip, and I love her. The last song on Black Rainbows is called Before the Throne of the Invisible God. Where does it leave us? The last song on the record sort of leads back to the first song on the record. It's kind of circular in that there's a big focus on the album on spirituality. Is it possible that the things we do in the present shape the future? You know, we, we all believe that. But is it also possible that the things we do in the present somehow affect the past, like there's some connection between us now and our ancestors. Does it give them a flash of joy in the past to know what we're doing here in the present? record has these moments of transcendence that's the best thing about music for me that it lifts you out of where you are and puts you in another space another world and and there are lots of moments on the record that talk about space and the psychedelic and the spiritual because they've been so important in black art the weirdness and the strangeness and rejecting the things that hold us down and the rules that are uh, ultimately will not last forever and, and thinking more about a new place, a utopia, and the eternal, and, and they're in, interesting ideas to think about with the record for me. musician Corinne Bailey Ray. Corinne Bailey Ray's new album, Black Rainbows, was released on Friday. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can learn about the wine, winemaker, and region, every purchase supports NPR programming, available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. WBUR's new field guide to Boston can help you discover and rediscover the place we call home. Neighborhoods, history, urban legends, wicked fun stuff. Dive in now at wbur.org slash fieldguide. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Brown University, offering a portfolio of online evidence-based mindfulness programs for all. Learn more at professional.brown.edu. And Milton Community Concerts with Tony nominee Ron Raines and others in A Bit of Broadway Magic on Saturday, September 23rd at 7. More at miltoncommunityconcerts.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Amy Dickinson showed how we love to support our celebrity guests as they take our quiz. Dude, you're never going to get this right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whatever we might try to throw off this week's special guest, Hillary Rodham Clinton, well, she's had worse. Join us for the news quiz where this week we all will be wearing pantsuits. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.